Chapter Five of Pellucidar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Five: Surprises. But at last the allotted moment arrived the moment for which I had been trying to prepare myself, for how long I could not even guess. A great Sagoth came and spoke some words of command to those who watched over me. I was jerked roughly to my feet, and with little consideration hustled upward toward the higher levels. Out into the broad avenue they conducted me, where, amid huge throngs of Mahars, Sagoths, and heavily guarded slaves, I was led, or rather pushed and shoved roughly, along in the same direction that the mob moved. I had seen such a concourse of people once before in the buried city of Futra. I guessed, and rightly, that we were bound for the great arena where slaves who are condemned to death meet their end. Into the vast amphitheater they took me, stationing me at the extreme end of the arena. The queen came, with her slimy, sickening retinue. The seats were filled. The show was about to commence. Then, from a little doorway in the opposite end of the structure, a girl was led into the arena. She was at a considerable distance from me. I could not see her features. I wondered what fate awaited this other poor victim and myself, and why they had chosen to have us die together. My own fate, or rather my thought of it, was submerged in the natural pity I felt for this lone girl, doomed to die horribly beneath the cold, cruel eyes of her awful captors. Of what crime could she be guilty that she must expiate it in the dreaded arena? As I stood thus thinking, another door, this time at one of the long sides of the arena, was thrown open, and into the theater of death slunk a mighty tarag, the huge cave tiger of the Stone Age. At my sides were my revolvers, my captors had not taken them from me, because they did not yet realize their nature. Doubtless they thought them some strange manner of war-club, and as those who are condemned to the arena are permitted weapons of defense, they let me keep them. The girl they had armed with a javelin. A brass pin would have been almost as effective against the ferocious monster they had loosed upon her. The Tarig stood for a moment looking about him first up at the vast audience and then about the arena. He did not seem to see me at all, but his eyes fell presently upon the girl. A hideous roar broke from his titanic lungs, a roar which ended in a long-drawn scream that is more human than the death cry of a tortured woman, more human, but more awesome. I could scarce restrain a shudder. Slowly the beast turned and moved toward the girl, then it was that I came to myself and to a realization of my duty. Quickly and as noiselessly as possible, I ran down the arena in pursuit of the grim creature. As I ran, I drew one of my pitifully futile weapons. Ah, could I but have had my lost express gun in my hands at that moment. A single well-placed shot would have crumbled even this great monster. The best I could hope to accomplish was to divert the thing from the girl to myself, and then to place as many bullets as possible in it before it reached and mauled me into insensibility and death. There is a certain unwritten law of the arena that vouchsafes freedom and immunity to the victor, be he beast or human being, 
both of whom, by the way, are all the same to the Mahar. That is, they were accustomed to look upon man as a lower animal before Perry and I broke through the Pellucidarian crust, but I imagine that they were beginning to alter their views a trifle, and to realize that in the Gilok, their word for human being, they had a highly organized, reasoning being to contend with. Be that as it may, the chances were that the Tarag alone would profit by the law of the arena. A few more of his long strides, a prodigious leap, and he would be upon the girl. I raised the revolver and fired. The bullet struck him in the left hind leg. It couldn't have damaged him much, but the report of the shot brought him around facing me. I think the snarling visage of a huge enraged saber-toothed tiger is one of the most terrible sights in the world, especially if he be snarling at you and there be nothing between the two of you but bare sand. Even as he faced me a little cry from the girl carried my eyes beyond the brute to her face. Hers was fastened upon me with an expression of incredulity that baffles description. There was both hope and horror in them, too. Diane, I cried. My heavens, Diane! I saw her lips form the name David as with raised javelin she rushed forward upon the tarug. She was a tigress then, a primitive savage female defending her loved one. Before she could reach the beast with her puny weapon, I fired again at the point where the tarug's neck met his left shoulder. If I could get a bullet through there, it might reach his heart. The bullet didn't reach his heart, but it stopped him for an instant. It was then that a strange thing happened. I heard a great hissing from the stands occupied by the Mahars, and as I glanced toward them I saw three mighty Thiptars, the winged dragons that guard the queen, or, as Perry calls them, pterodactyls, rise swiftly from their rocks and dart lightning-like toward the center of the arena. They are huge, powerful reptiles, one of them, with the advantage which his wings might give him, would easily be a match for a cave bear or a tarag. These three, to my consternation, swooped down upon the tarag as he was gathering himself for a final charge upon me. They buried their talons in his back and lifted him bodily from the arena, as if he had been a chicken in the clutches of a hawk. What could it mean? I was baffled for an explanation but with the tarag gone I lost no time in hastening to Diane's side. With a little cry of delight she threw herself into my arms. So lost were we in the ecstasy of reunion that neither of us, to this day, can tell what became of the tarag. The first thing we were aware of was the presence of a body of Sagoths about us. Gruffly they commanded us to follow them. They led us from the arena and back through the streets of Futra, to the audience chamber in which I had been tried and sentenced. Here we found ourselves facing the same cold, cruel tribunal. Again a Sagoth acted as interpreter. He explained that our lives had been spared because at the last moment Tualsa had returned to Futra, and seeing me in the arena had prevailed upon the queen to spare my life. Who is Tualsa? I asked. A Mahar whose last male ancestor was, ages ago, the last of the male rulers among the Mahars, he replied. Why should she wish to have my life spared? He shrugged his shoulders and then repeated my question to the Mahar spokesman. When the latter had explained in the strange sign language that passes for speech between the Mahars and their fighting men, the Sagoth turned again to me. 
For a long time you had to Tualsa in your power, he explained. You might easily have killed her or abandoned her in a strange world, but you did neither. You did not harm her, and you brought her back with you to Pellucidar and set her free to return to Futra. This is your reward. Now I understood. The Mehar, who had been my involuntary companion upon my return to the outer world, was Tualsa. This was the first time that I had learned the lady's name. I thanked fate that I had not left her upon the sands of the Sahara, or put a bullet in her, as I had been tempted to do. I was surprised to discover that gratitude was a characteristic of the dominant race of Pellucidar. I could never think of them as aught but cold-blooded, brainless reptiles, though Perry had devoted much time in explaining to me that owing to a strange freak of evolution among all the genera of the inner world this species of the reptilia had advanced to a position quite analogous to that which man holds upon the outer crust. He had often told me that there was every reason to believe from their writings, which he had learned to read while we were incarcerated in Futra, that they were a just race, and that in certain branches of science and arts they were quite well advanced, especially in genetics and metaphysics, engineering and architecture. While it had always been difficult for me to look upon these things as other than slimy winged crocodiles, which, by the way, they do not at all resemble, I was now forced to a realization of the fact that I was in the hands of enlightened creatures, for justice and gratitude are certain hallmarks of rationality and culture. But what they proposed for us further was of most imminent interest to me. They might save us from the Tarag and yet not free us. They looked upon us yet, to some extent I knew, as creatures of a lower order, and so, as we are unable to place ourselves in the position of the brutes we enslave, thinking that they are happier in bondage than in the free fulfillment of the purposes for which nature intended them, the Mahars, too, might consider our welfare better conserved in captivity than among the dangers of the savage freedom we craved. Naturally, I was next impelled to inquire their further intent. To my question, put through the Sagoth interpreter, I received the reply that, having spared my life, they considered that Tualsa's debt of gratitude was cancelled. They still had against me, however, the crime of which I had been guilty, the unforgivable crime of stealing the great secret. They therefore intended holding Diane and me prisoners until the manuscript was returned to them. They would, they said, send an escort of Sagoths with me to fetch the precious document from its hiding place, keeping Diane at Futra as a hostage, and releasing us both the moment that the document was safely restored to their queen. There was no doubt but that they had the upper hand. However, there was so much more at stake than the liberty or even the lives of Diane and myself that I did not deem it expedient to accept their offer without giving the matter careful thought. Without the great secret, this maleless race must eventually become extinct. For ages they had fertilized their eggs by an artificial process, the secret of which lay hidden in the little cave of a far-off valley where Diane and I had spent our honeymoon. I was none too sure that I could find the valley again, nor that I cared to. So long as the powerful reptilian race of Pellucidar continued to propagate, just so long would the position of man within the inner world be jeopardized. There could not be two dominant races. 
I said as much to Diane. You used to tell me, she replied, of the wonderful things you could accomplish with the inventions of your own world. Now you have returned with all that is necessary to place this great power in the hands of the men of Pellucidar. You told me of great engines of destruction, which would cast a bursting ball of metal among our enemies, killing hundreds of them at one time. You told me of mighty fortresses of stone, which a thousand men armed with big and little engines such as these could hold forever against a million Sagoths. You told me of great canoes which moved across the water without paddles, and which spat death from holes in their sides. All these may now belong to the men of Pellucidar. Why should we fear the Mahars? Let them breed, let their numbers increase by thousands, they will be helpless before the power of the emperor of Pellucidar. But if you remain a prisoner in Futra, what may we accomplish? What could the men of Pellucidar do without you to lead them? They would fight among themselves, and while they fought, the Mahars would fall upon them, and even though the Mahar race should die out, of what value would the emancipation of the human race be to them without the knowledge which you alone may wield to guide them toward the wonderful civilization of which you have told me so much that I long for its comforts and luxuries as I never before longed for anything? No, David, the Mahars cannot harm us if you are at liberty. Let them have their secret that you and I may return to our people and lead them to the conquest of all Pellucidar. It was plain that Diane was ambitious, and that her ambition had not dulled her reasoning faculties. She was right. Nothing could be gained by remaining bottled up in Futra for the rest of our lives. It was true that Perry might do much with the contents of the prospector, or iron mole, in which I had brought down the implements of our outer-world civilization, but Perry was a man of peace. He could never weld the warring factions of the disrupted federation. He could never win new tribes to the empire. He would fiddle around manufacturing gunpowder and trying to improve upon it until someone blew him up with his own invention. He wasn't practical. He never would get anywhere without a balance wheel, without someone to direct his energies. Perry needed me, and I needed him. If we were going to do anything for Pellucidar, we must be free to do it together. The outcome of it all was that I agreed to the Mahar's proposition. They promised that Diane would be well treated and protected from every indignity during my absence. So I set out with a hundred Sagoths in search of the little valley which I had stumbled upon by accident, and which I might and might not find again. We traveled directly toward Sari. Stopping at the camp where I had been captured, I recovered my express rifle, for which I was very thankful. I found it lying where I had left it when I had been overpowered in my sleep by the Sagoths who had captured me and slain my Mesop companions. On the way I added materially to my map, an occupation which did not elicit from the Sagoths even a shadow of interest. I felt that the human race of Pellucidar had little to fear from these gorilla men. They were fighters, that was all. We might even use them later ourselves in this same capacity. They had not sufficient brain power to constitute a menace to the advancement of the human race. As we neared the spot where I hoped to find the little valley, I became more and more confident of success. 
Every landmark was familiar to me, and I was sure now that I knew the exact location of the cave. It was at about this time that I sighted a number of the half-naked warriors of the human race of Pellucidar. They were marching across our front. At sight of us they halted. That there would be a fight I could not doubt. These Sagoths would never permit an opportunity for the capture of slaves for their Mahar masters to escape them. I saw that the men were armed with bows and arrows, long lances and swords, so I guessed that they must have been members of the Federation, for only my people had been thus equipped. Before Perry and I came, the men of Pellucidar had only the crudest weapons wherewith to slay one another. The Sagoths, too, were evidently expecting battle. With savage shouts they rushed forward toward the human warriors. Then a strange thing happened. The leader of the human being stepped forward with upraised hands. The Sagoths ceased their war cries and advanced slowly to meet him. There was a long parley during which I could see that I was often the subject of their discourse. The Sagoth's leader pointed in the direction in which I had told him the valley lay. Evidently he was explaining the nature of our expedition to the leader of the warriors. It was all a puzzle to me. What human being could be upon such excellent terms with the gorilla man? I couldn't imagine. I tried to get a good look at the fellow, but the Sagoths had left me in the rear with a guard when they had advanced to battle, and the distance was too great for me to recognize the features of any of the human beings. Finally the parley was concluded, and the men continued on their way while the Sagoths returned to where I stood with my guard. It was time for eating, so we stopped where we were and made our meal. The Sagoths didn't tell me who it was they had met and I did not ask, though I must confess that I was quite curious. They permitted me to sleep at this halt. Afterward we took up the last leg of our journey. I found the valley without difficulty, and led my guard directly to the cave. At his mouth the Sagoths halted, and I entered alone. I noticed, as I felt about the floor in the dim light, that there was a pile of fresh-turned rubble there. Presently my hands came to the spot where the great secret had been buried. There was a cavity where I had carefully smoothed the earth over the hiding place of the document. The manuscript was gone. Frantically I searched the whole interior of the cave several times over, but without other result than a complete confirmation of my worst fears. Someone had been here ahead of me and stolen the great secret. The one thing within Pellucidar which might free Diane and me was gone, nor was it likely that I should ever learn its whereabouts. If a Mahar had found it, which was quite improbable, the chances were that the dominant race would never divulge the fact that they had recovered the precious document. If a caveman had happened upon it, he would have no conception of its meaning or value, and as a consequence it would be lost or destroyed in short order." With bowed head and broken hopes, I came out of the cave and told the Sagoth chieftain what I had discovered. It didn't mean much to the fellow, who doubtless had but little better idea of the contents of the document I had been sent to fetch to his masters than would the caveman who in all probability had discovered it. The Sagoth knew only that I had failed in my mission, so he took advantage of the fact to make the return journey to Futra as disagreeable as possible. I did not rebel, though I had with me the means to destroy them all. 
I did not dare rebel because of the consequences to Diane. I intended demanding her release on the grounds that she was in no way guilty of the theft, and that my failure to recover the document had not lessened the value of the good faith I had had in offering to do so. The Mahars might keep me in slavery if they chose, but Diane should be returned safely to her people. I was full of my scheme when we entered Futra, and I was conducted directly to the great audience chamber. The Mahars listened to the report of the Sagoth chieftain, and so difficult is it to judge their emotions from their almost expressionless countenance that I was at a loss to know how terrible might be their wrath as they learned that their great secret, upon which rested the fate of their race, might now be irretrievably lost. Presently I could see that she who presided was communicating something to the Sagoth interpreter, doubtless something to be transmitted to me which might give me a forewarning of the fate which lay in store for me. One thing I had decided definitely. If they would not free Diane, I should turn loose upon Futra with my little arsenal. Alone I might even win to freedom, and if I could learn where Diane was imprisoned, it would be worth the attempt to free her. My thoughts were interrupted by the interpreter. The mighty Mahars, he said, are unable to reconcile your statement that the document is lost with your action in sending it to them by a special messenger. They wish to know if you have so soon forgotten the truth, or if you are merely ignoring it. I sent them no document, I cried. Ask them what they mean. They say, he went on, after conversing with the Mehar for a moment, that just before your return to Futra, Huja, the sly one, came, bringing the great secret with him. He said that you had sent him ahead with it, asking him to deliver it and return to Sari where you would await him, bringing the girl with him. Diane, I gasped, the Mehars have given over Diane into the keeping of Huja. Surely he replied. What of it? She is only a gillack. As you or I would say, she is only a cow. End of chapter 5